0: This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at altizen.com, A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to John Artman, editor in chief from TechNote and host of China Tech Talk, on why blockchain is now hot again in China despite the ban on ICOs and cryptocurrency exchanges. Hi, John. Hey, Bernard. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, it, it's finally turning into spring. We had a bit of rain recently, but it's finally turning into nicer weather here in Beijing.
0: Yes, and I was here a week earlier to catch up with you at where you were working last week in Beijing, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, it was great to see you. I think that was that's actually the first time that we've talked face to face. It was great being able to uh, to host you in our in our office for for just a little while.
0: And then of course, the week before, I met your co-host Matthew Brennan from China Tech Talk. So there was like two weeks in a row. I just managed to catch up with my two favorite people in China. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that. And I'm talking to John Atman, editor in chief from TechNode and host of China Tech Talk, and I think the Noteworthy podcast, right? Yeah, yeah. So we do we do two podcasts. Since our last conversation,
1: what have you been up to? A lot. Uh, I'm not quite sure when this when this episode is going to be released, but we are just in the middle of. Getting ready for TechCrunch Hangzhou, which is going to be there's some pre-events that'll start on the 30th, June 30th, and then kind of main conference is from July 2nd and July 3rd. So the content team, you know, we're in charge of everything that you see on stage, inviting the guests, figuring out the topics, actually doing the on-stage moderating, and so both the Chinese and English teams are are scurrying around, trying to get speakers confirmed, trying to figure out what, what we can talk about and all that fun stuff. And then of course on top of that, we've launched uh, an event series, a smaller event series for TechNote English. We just had a meetup a couple of weeks ago here in Beijing. And then this week on May 24th, we are having an an educational event, if you will. So we'll be we'll be having some presentations and then a panel discussion about uh, cross border and cross cultural branded communication. And then I mean, oh my gosh, I mean everything else. You know, everything else that I usually do on top of
0: that. <laughs> you all have done TechCrunch Disrupt Beijing, TechCrunch Disrupt Shanghai, and I think even Shenzhen as well. So why Hangzhou now? Because of Alibaba. Just a quick correction there. So technically we're not TechCrunch Disrupt. So Disrupt
1: is like the is when TechCrunch, when they have their own in-house events team when they when they organize everything. So we are an international city event, a TechCrunch international city event, just to just to clarify that. Because we end up doing, you know, ninety percent of the organization. So it's a bit different in that sense. But this year we chose to do do Hangzhou. I mean, like we've been looking at Hangzhou a little bit more recently and we decided that it's a great place to to host. It's a little bit different. Than Shanghai, Beijing, and, and Shenzhen. There's a lot more focus on edtech and a lot more focus on e-commerce. And so, you know, we're not just going to be doing only those two topics, obviously, for the conference, but those are going to
0: be two, two major areas. And of course, Alibaba was there. I was in Hangzhou, I think, three years ago. An amazing place. And at that point in time, they were starting the Cloud City where they invited startups to come to leverage on the Ali Cloud services and also building out companies from that. So today, I would like to talk to you on an interesting subject. I thought you brought it up and I think I'm going to be very spontaneous because I didn't know you've been working on this topic. It's about blockchain in China. I think the way I'm going to start is to ask this question, right? Given that the Chinese government has banned ICOs and cryptocurrency exchanges, I think last year, why is the story of blockchain suddenly become relevant in China?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I mean, you know, to take back, you know, a lot of the speculation and a lot of the the volatility from starting starting from last year in the, the cryptocurrency space coming from Chinese speculation, you know, there are two or three of the largest exchanges in the entire world are from China. BTCC, Okcoin, and or now it's called OKx and, and Huobi. Three of the largest exchanges were all were all based in China. No, they no longer are. And so a lot of the, a lot of the volatility was coming from Chinese Chinese speculators. So what happened late last year is that the government stepped in for a few different reasons and maybe we, we can unpack that, but they basically put a halt to all speculation, both in the form of, of ICOs and then in the form of exchanges. Originally, the crackdown was on the ICOs themselves. There was a lot of I mean even globally, you know, there's a lot of kind of BS projects, some with good intentions, some with bad intentions, and the same was true in, in China. But at the end of the day, I think it's difficult to convince any government that an ICO is not skirting regulations. So in China it deemed that this was an illegal way to raise money. Anyone who had done an ICO in China China to Chinese customers were if you and especially if you were a Chinese company then you were required to refund the ICO and then soon after that exchanges were also told to close down as well. A lot of this happened right before the 19th Party Congress, which is the biggest political event in all of China every five years. Around any political event, the government is very, I mean, the government is always pretty wary, I would say, but they're on, they're a little bit more wary or much more wary than they normally are. And so they try to do everything possible to control any exigencies that may make the political event look bad. There's a tradition in Chinese history that, you know, with the mandate of heaven, that if something goes wrong during an important event, that means that the government's or the emperor, uh, if you will, is kind of out of favor. And so while China certainly is not as superstitious as it used to be, this is still a factor and it's very symbolic in, in many ways. So then now, you know, we we fast forward to, to May 2018 and the government is firmly behind blockchain. And you can see that many cities are setting up their own blockchain funds and the government, even the central government, is becoming much more vocal about supporting blockchain development.
0: Just to unpack a few things here, banning ICOs, I think I can understand why the Chinese government moved ahead to do that because they want to stop speculation. And in fact, there are a lot more scams. Probably now I could say 99% of the ICOs are just BS and then probably 1% really worked. But I think the cryptocurrency exchanges was a little bit more extreme. Why did they want to ban that given that I think things like Bitcoin, Ethereum, like coins that are pretty mainstream in the cryptocurrency markets?
1: Yeah, so a lot of it was the volatility. So, I mean, there's, there's always going to be, there's a few different questions that you can ask when you're trying to guess whether or not the government is going to allow or disallow something. And in the case of both Bitcoin and Ethereum and blockchain to a certain degree as well, but in particular, these two protocols, they're completely out of the out of the control of the Chinese government. Bitcoin, it's almost impossible to actually regulate in the sense that because there's no real... There, I mean, there are, of course, Bitcoin miners that do have a large say in kind of how things play out with Bitcoin, especially when we see like with a fork or something like that. You know, Ethereum is an actual company, so there might be a little bit more control that the, that the government could, could put pressure on the Ethereum Foundation or, you know, a large company like Consensus or something like that. But at the end of the day, both of these currencies were number one, completely out of their control. There's there's no employees, there's no there's no headquarters, there's no office that they could put pressure on. There was a lot of volatility in the market. And so again, a lot of this was coming right before the 19th Party Congress. And so what they didn't want was to have some sort of crash in any specific cryptocurrency that might have a knock-on effect to the broader economy. So you think about the number of people speculating, the number of people who had already lost their shirts in this speculation. I think it's reasonable to worry about whether or not stupid money or, or dumb money might just lose all of their money, and that might actually have some some negative effects because, again, most of the um, a lot of the speculation was coming from China. Which meant that a lot of people were were invested in these cryptocurrencies, and with all that volatility, if there was you know a severe dip, then it could spell disaster if that were to influence other other areas
0: of the economy. I think setting aside the cryptocurrency pieces, and then just taking a look at the blockchain side of things, there are also alternate projects in China that are probably not to the scale of what ethereum is doing for example new and quantum so where are they in this whole blockchain development now all
1: well, right that's that's what's so interesting i think that in general you know you look at these these companies and i think that this is one of the the first times that china is really kind of on par with the rest of the world in terms of developing these technologies and in many cases even smaller more specialized applications, even though they're not based in China, they're still very interested in being active in China to, to a certain degree. And so when we look at NEO, so NEO and Quantum, these two in particular, I mean, basically what they're doing is they're trying to develop something similar to to Ethereum. The interesting thing is actually that both of them, they have operations here in China, but they're technically not Chinese companies, even though a lot of their staff are, are Chinese. And so there is this kind of interesting tension that a lot of these earlier companies especially have of whether or not they're Chinese or not, how active they can actually be in China. Because at the end of the day, their ambitions are global. And that's what's really cool about a lot of these, especially these protocols that are trying to be platform protocols, trying to be, you know, the foundation for other decentralized apps, is that, you know, the technology is... can really be used anywhere. And again, I think this is super interesting because it's the first time that Chinese developers are kind of running in parallel. They're on the same page, maybe a little bit ahead in some areas than the rest of the world.
0: Where are the developments for blockchain going in China at the moment? Is it merely for like developing it for say something in the utilities energy space or something in like watermarking pictures? I think there was a very interesting application that I heard of that was in China that is used to watermark pictures using the blockchain.
1: Yeah, I mean, so the government, I mean, at this point, you know, the government is, like I said, is very bullish on the technology. We're seeing a lot of bigger companies looking at blockchain for, again, but globally, what big, big companies are looking at. Supply chain financing, as you said, watermarking, keeping records and things like that. And so that's what's super interesting is because, I mean, again, all of these applications are are global. They're not really specific to China. And, you know, you look at JD, you look at, uh, you look at Walmart, Alibaba actually has the most blockchain patents in the entire world, which is very interesting. Although they haven't really talked much about how they're using those patents. So again, I mean, I think that that, that basically what we're seeing in, in China is just kind of on par that with the rest of the world. It's only that, in many cases, the, the technologies themselves seem to be being rolled out a lot, a lot faster. And so for the government, you think about the possibilities of a government run on blockchain. And so, you know, being able to prove that records are not false, being able to falsification of records and other types of fraud. Already China has the identification cards. Every single Chinese citizen has an ID card. Obviously, if before a certain age you won't you won't need one, but once you get to a certain age you have one and that is linked to a central database. And so when we talk about social credit, when we talk about financial credit, when we talk about, you know, whether or not someone is eligible to own a home, whether they already own a home, whether they own a car, all this all this kind of stuff can be Put on put onto the blockchain, and you know China is is a very bureaucratic country, and there's a lot of paper that gets shuffled around. And so the potential of kind of moving to an electronic system that is also on the one hand, the, on the other hand, trustworthy, I think is is really kind of where where this is all this is all going in China.
0: And it's really surprising that actually the number of patents that are filed <laughs> by China on blockchain is actually more than the rest of the world. I I think this is something pretty interesting and I think it also stretches a bit to the wider technology team that's ongoing. I think China has been following a lot of patterns and also you see the recent crisis with ZTE because they were licensing technologies from the US. There is this China 2025 initiative where the government wants to build its own technologies. Do you see the blockchain movement is actually going in that direction to what the government wants to do with the blockchain?
1: Yeah, so so first of all, I mean, a lot of these patents they're 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 issued in China. The standards for 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 patent issuance in China is 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 quite different than you might see in the West. I think we need to take that patent number with a grain of salt because I think that in su- in some if these same patents were filed by a US company in in the states they made they may actually have been rejected already. I'm not a patent lawyer, but I think that 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 if you ask patent lawyers, they they can verify that this is kind of a trend in China where there is a saturation of patents. It's easy to file a patent whether or not it's actually enforceable, whether or not it actually, you know, will lead to a to any tech, any actual technology is is really kind of up in the air. So that's that's just kind of one one caveat. But in terms of Made in China 2025, I think that I mean this is part of a much much broader trend that started a long time before before ZTE. And so obviously I mean and and so you know the action against ZTE by the United States has really kind of given China a bit more of a political impetus to implement this program. But like when it comes to technologies like artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence is of strategic national security. And so both the United States and China and the rest of the world they're all looking at artificial intelligence in particular because I mean this your your ability to process data your ability to make decisions about data, your ability to create military systems around artificial intelligence. I mean, like really that that is the next kind of the, the real point of tension, I think, or point of uh, developmental tension between, between the world's militaries. When it comes to blockchain, I think that a lot of it is the recognition of the power of the technology, and then at the same time, the recognition that the technology has to be homegrown. And not only because of CTE, but also just because this is how the government can control it in in particular. When it comes to other hardware specific things, when it comes to technologies that have had to been Licensed historically, I mean, a lot of that is issues of national security and and sovereignty. You know, China does not want to be subject to the whims, if you will, of another country. I mean, you look at their food policy you know China is still very much worried about famine and because of that they they make sure to stockpile a certain ratio of grain rice and and wheat because they're just so concerned about being beholden to imports of, of this type of food I mean obviously as the world trade system has developed they, they be they, the government has become a little bit a little bit more trusting if you will but when it comes to these types of technologies the number one consideration I think is whether or not they can control it and if they can't, then it might be a national security concern. And I think this is this is similar to, you know, what, what all these uh, big powers are thinking.
0: And I think the blockchain technology can be applied even in the case of thinking like dealing with fraud and dealing with a lot of these uh, security pieces. What I'm very curious to know is that do you foresee because the Chinese government will eventually like some other nations who've been planning this like Russia, like Estonia do their own cryptocurrency because moving the renminbi to the digital version is doesn't seem very far fetched for many people, right? The the People's
1: Bank of China. So Alibaba and the People's Bank of China are the number one, number two patent holders for blockchain technology in China. And the the PBOC has been very vocal about developing some kind of digital fiat currency, some kind of digital blockchain-based renminbi. And so definitely, I don't think it's far-fetched at all. I mean, I think that when I mean, you look at the user habits of of mobile payments, and the idea of using cash is becoming more and more foreign. If we were to believe in conspiracy theories, I think it's very easy to you know kind of make this, uh, this causational connection between the two. I don't think that's necessarily true. But I do think that China is in probably the best position in the entire world to actually develop something like this. I mean, because, I mean, again, at this point, Uh, I hardly ever use cash. The ability to transfer money online between bank accounts, between WeChat, my WeChat wallet and my bank account, between my bank account and Alipay and, and vice versa... I mean, obviously, there still are are some restrictions or the ability to directly use, for example, you know, my credit card through WeChat. And so I can put my credit card information into WeChat and I can just use that directly instead of using a a cash or a debit card or or transferring money. So, I mean, the, the user habit is there already. And the beauty of blockchain is that really any good blockchain application, the user does not need to know that it's blockchain. The user does not need to even understand why blockchain is important or what kinds of data is being collected from these transactions. From a user perspective, I mean conceivably, you know, the government could just flip a switch and one day we're all using blockchain-based RMB. And I imagine I imagine that phasing out cash is still going to take take quite some time, but I mean, it's it's already used so so little.
0: You know, in the West there's been this discussion that's currently going on in blockchain disintermediating some of the internet aggregators like, for example, Facebook, Google, Airbnb, or even Uber by basically develop the blockchain version of that because what blockchain can actually do is that the consumers who's actually using these services can also earn the cryptocurrency as part of that exchange within the decentralized system. Do you foresee something like that happening in China as well?
1: That's hard to say. Again, I think it all it all has to do with what it actually it is and how well it can be regulated. Again, I think that that the issue with any decentralization in China is is exactly that it's decentralized, and so I think that in terms of a political governance perspective, there's going to be a lot of gray areas, especially in the beginning, as these uh, decentralized apps begin to become more popular. It could even go to, the, to you know the way that things kind of always go in China, or at least they have recently, is that the big players start you know really kind of snapping up or some of the, some of the smaller kind of DAP companies or they start making their own dams and, and internal economies. And these companies, they they know which side their bread is buttered on. So they're not going to make, you know, a decentralized internal economy that goes against the the will of, of the Communist Party. So so basically what I'm saying is that I think that it's it's really unclear how it's going to develop. But if I had to put money on it, I would say that. It's probably going to be much more tightly controlled. I mean, obviously, it's going to be much more tightly controlled than we would see in other jurisdictions. And again, my guess would be that larger companies are probably going to be leading the way in in a lot of these areas. I mean, NetEase is already starting to do it. Baidu and and, uh, Alibaba and Xiaomi, they already have their crypto pet platforms and, and things like that. So, in the end of the day, I think that from a regulatory perspective, these were, these are going to be the, the favorite
0: players. I'm pretty surprised because recently, if you look at their US counterparts, only Facebook has actually announced that they have a blockchain division. You haven't heard Google, you haven't heard Amazon. I'm sure they're doing it. It's just a question of when they want to announce it. So, I, I think maybe the broader picture is that will the advances of blockchain happening in China will give them an edge towards moving out of China as well. Because if you think of the digital payment space and using that as an analog, I mean, the Chinese government allowed Alipay and TenPay to flourish first and then started to put in systems like Wanglian and also imposing tighter controls to the payments. And now, these two payment systems actually expanding into the Southeast Asia market. Do you foresee the same thing happen? Would you see that they would use the, the blockchain technology that they developed to expand all of China?
1: Yeah, I, I think, I mean, the, the expansion, I think is less tech, technology-driven than it is, you know, business-driven. And I think that's, that's very true of the Chinese technology ecosystem in general. There's there's a lot of talk about whether or not China is innovative or, or not. And I would say that, you know, the the success of many of these chinese companies has not been because of their technical innovation the success has been because of their business model innovation which is slightly different it's it's hard for me to imagine that leadership in the blockchain in blockchain applications or blockchain use cases in china would somehow lead to more momentum outside of China because I think that they're still going to face similar problems cultural problems regulatory problems and just just problems of the market because I mean at the end of the day I mean users don't care about the technology they care does they care does it work does it does it fulfill a need does it do what I want it to do you know one of the features of blockchain is you know are these internal economies are these networks of trust and and things like that do consumers need that? Do they not need that? Do they want to know about it? Do they not want to know about it? I think, again, these are these are some broader kind of product market fit questions, not so much about the technology itself. I mean, you know, the efficiencies promised by blockchain, I think, are going to be high enough that it could be that if a company can transition to blockchain internally with their own internal systems or and create products that are more efficient, then there is that 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 possibility that they'll be able to be much more agile, and they'll be able to find solutions to the product market fit problems. It won't be only because they were able to incubate their their blockchain technology here here in China. I think it's, it's still, you know, broader, kind of more, more fundamental questions.
0: So if you were to take a little crystal ball, and then you try to shift it forward in the next one to two years, do you think that the blockchain development will be centered a lot more on private sector needs or government needs?
1: I think it's going to be much more government needs, much more public sector needs. Okay, you look at the amount of money that governments around the country are are pledging, putting into investment funds and things like that. I mean, obviously, some of that is going to go to, to the to the private sector. But I think that if I was sitting in the government, I'm looking at blockchain, I'm saying, wow, this is going to make everyone's life so much easier. Uh, and, I, and I really do believe that that is going to be true. I mean, again, China is this huge, amazing bureaucracy. If you look at <laughs> I mean, if you look at the way things have been done in this country, and if you take a really hard look, I think you'd be really surprised to see, you know, how backwards much of the government is. Everything is still done on paper. Everything is still about stamps. I mean, they they have to update their uh, official receipt format in order to prevent fraud and, you know, everything, I mean, it's all, I mean, they're just now starting to kind of bring online certain databases and, and shared systems across the country. And that's, and that's true for for a few different reasons. And I, but I think so, so blockchain, I mean, like that's going to be amazing for, for the government and think about all the paper you can get rid of. Think about, you know, the ability to, to track every single public behavior of a citizen and it's going to solve so many problems for, for the government public sector. I mean, so private sector, you know, I think that there's going to be a lot of interesting applications, but again, it's still kind of government going to be government related. So energy regulation, real estate transactions and things like that, it's still very much kind of fundamental things that, that the government is still going to be very active in.
0: John, many thanks for coming on the show. And I think it's probably something that we will continue to monitor and think about what blockchain would, be, would mean to China and also to the rest of the world. But in closing, I wanted to ask you two questions. My first question is, can you recommend any book, podcast or something you have seen that is really interesting? To your life read.
1: Yeah. So this is going to be a bit controversial, but I would say Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life. If you're aware of who he is and you don't like him because of his political his political positions, I would say that the book itself is still very, very valuable and it doesn't have to necessarily be political. So and I think he has a lot of insight into kind of how human psychology works. Certainly, he's given me a lot of insight into myself, myself as a father, myself as a husband, as an employee, as a manager, and so on and so on. Another great book is Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker. And so basically, he outlines the reasons why the enlightenment is still relevant and why we should be trying to follow more of enlightenment ideals. It's it's really awesome because... I think there's a lot of pessimists out there, people who look at the world and they say, oh, it's just getting worse. Nothing's gotten better. You know, there's no, there's no, no such thing as progress and things. But if you look at the data, life is getting better across the board. And a lot of that has to do with uh, enlightenment
0: ideals and enlightenment values. Well, I'm a fan of enlightenment ideals. I just didn't understand why we are being bogged down by 200 years of postmodernism.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there is that. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I, I thought it would be interesting that I should put a book recommendation and that came from our common friend, Matthew Brennan. is a Chinese book written in Mandarin called Teng Zhuan which is the story of Tencent from 1998 to 2016. I have actually got a physical copy of the book thanks to one of my colleagues in the China office. And I was reading that on my way back and I'm probably think that if you really want to understand the history of Tencent, this is the book to read. And my last question to you, John, how do my audience find you?
1: Yeah, so uh, techno.com. I'm not so much... You won't see my name very often, but I'm in the background. Or if you want to get in touch, you can find me on LinkedIn or on Twitter. Uh, My handle is at knows nothing. How
0: about your two podcasts?
1: And then, of course, I have two podcasts that I do. So one is uh, in collaboration with uh, Matthew Brennan at China Channel. That's That's a weekly discussion. Uh, an in-depth interview or uh, discussion between Key and I about uh, pertinent topics with with China. We'd like to do uh, deep dives and uh, really kind of dissect what's going on. I also do a, uh, a podcast uh, with our TechNode staff. So every week, you know, our reporters publish super interesting feature stories that they put a lot of work into. And so we take the time to talk a little bit more about them, about the stories and kind of some of the interesting things that, uh, that our reporters have found.
0: And you can find me at Bernard Leung or at burnalown.com subscribe to us at Analyze Asia A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia on Twitter iTunes, Stitcher SoundCloud Acast and everywhere else and of course drop me your feedback recommend us on Overcast and Pocketcast with a star or give us a five star on iTunes rating so once again John thank you for coming on the show thank you for having me